Well, we are currently in this study where we find ourselves in the Gospel of Mark. And what we are planning on doing through this study is we're looking at the Messiah. And Mark wrote this gospel mainly for that reason, to answer that question and to make, it, to make sure that you know, that you know who the one true Messiah is. And he's proclaimed that right from verse 1 of chapter 1. Mark wrote this to proclaim that Jesus is the Messiah. The one that the people of Israel had been waiting for when he wrote this. In the first week of the study, we talked about the arrival of the Messiah. That this Messiah that had come, that they had been waiting for. And we've been, we've been going off the fact, that I've been going off the fact that in our current culture, there are so many messiahs in our world or proclaiming to be a messiah. There's all these false messiahs that are walking around in our world that are trying to trying to get you to follow them, trying you know, you know, promising you all these amazing benefits if you just follow and do what they say. And to be honest, those types of messiahs that are walking in the world, they just can't be trusted at all. And as we looked at the arrival of the Messiah in the first week, we found out that Mark made sure that we knew that Jesus is the Messiah that you can trust. He's a Messiah that can be trusted. He's a Messiah that's worthy of your devotion and love. Think about all these Messiahs in our world. That's, they're, trying to, they're trying to make it clear to you that, that they are worthy of your devotion, that they are worthy of you following them. But Mark was clear that Jesus is the one and only true Messiah that is worthy of our devotion and love. And Jesus is the only Messiah that can actually set you free. Like how many messiahs are promoting themselves in a world and they're saying they can do these amazing things. They can set you free from this struggle. They can set you free from this, and, but they can't. And Mark's clear that Jesus is the one and only messiah that can actually do that. Last week, we, we talked about the storm calming power of the messiah. We looked at that story of, of Jesus calming the storm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee with his disciples. Um, this week, we're going to be looking at the cost of following the Messiah, that there is a cost of following. We just recently went through this election process, right? And I wonder, have you ever noticed when we've ever gone through an election process, whether it's municipal, federal, provincial, have you noticed that the people running for office don't usually say something along like this, like this is not part of their tagline or part of their advertisement or things that you see them um, on their flyers and campaign sites? Here's what's going, here is what is going to cost you if you choose to follow me. This is, what is, this is what's going to cost you if you elect me in this office. No one has a campaign slogan like that because if they did, they would get no votes, right? They're not going to tell you this is what's going to cost you. Instead, they say, here's the benefits of electing me. But they don't, they don't tell what we're going to cost by getting those benefits, right? And here's Jesus. Here's Jesus who says, I want to let you know that this is the cost if you follow me. Like, that's part of Jesus' campaign slogan if he was running. This is what it's going to cost you to follow me. This is what it's going to cost you if you choose to align 
with me. This is what it's going to cost you if you choose to be on my team. And that's what Jesus says. The first half of Mark really revolves around one basic question. And it says, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Then you get to chapter 8. And then right in the middle of this book, Jesus asks the disciples this question. In fact, he actually asks them two questions. So we're in Mark chapter 8 here today. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to flip to them. And we're going to be starting in verse 27. And this is what we read. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? First question. And they replied, well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others say one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? There's the second question. Peter answered, as Peter normally would in a situation like this, right? He blurts out, he says, you're the Messiah. You are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Now, which we'll talk about in a minute. But now, most of the people who were listening to Jesus teach about the kingdom still, got, still hadn't got who Jesus really was. Because they're thinking, well, maybe he's John the Baptist. Or maybe he's one of these, these faithful major prophets, right? You know, they liked what Jesus taught. They liked what Jesus was doing. They wanted to be part of his miracles, but they really didn't know who Jesus was. Peter, though, is starting to get it, I think, right? He's starting to figure this out, and, and Peter S. Form blurts out without thinking, because that's what he does. He speaks before he thinks. And he blurts out that you are the Christ, Jesus. You are the Messiah. And when Peter makes this declaration, Jesus says, you know what, Peter? You're right. You're right. But then Jesus says something on the surface that actually seems quite confusing if you think about it. After that, that after he affirmed Peter's answer, he tells the disciples to not tell anyone that he actually is the Messiah. Now, say what? Like, what? Like, why? Why would Jesus say that? Like, isn't it his mission that people know who he actually is? Now, why wouldn't Jesus want the disciples telling people who he is? Why wouldn't he want people to know his real, true identity? Well, it's because it's the kind of king everyone at that time was actually looking for. And the kind of king Jesus really is could not be more different than that. And that's why right after Peter makes this declaration, Jesus then says this. In verse 31, he says this. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. A little context here. Um, this, the term son of man was actually the term Jesus used the most to, to actually refer to himself. The term is not a term that, G, that applies 
to Jesus' humanity. And we might think the Son of Man, might, that term might apply to his, his humanity because it's the Son of Man. It actually was a term that referred to Jesus' divinity instead. And you actually see that throughout the whole entire Old Testament. You see it very clearly in Daniel's vision. Listen to Daniel's vision. In Daniel 7, he says this, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and all peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, the Son of Man is actually this divine figure. And it's this, and it's this, this idea that the Son of Man is going to come and set everything right in the world. The Son of Man is the Messiah, the anointed one, the king. It's Jesus. And that is the term that Jesus uses the most to actually describe himself. Now, none of that would have been surprising to the disciples. What would have been surprising is when Jesus said the Son of Man would actually have to suffer. That would have been incredibly surprising because the Son of Man, the Messiah, the King, had never been connected with suffering. Some who were here when we were going through our Isaiah study, remember that in Isaiah there's this reference to the suffering servant, right? We talked about how the suffering servant actually points us to Jesus, but the reality is this, that no one, no one had connected the suffering servant that we find in Isaiah to the Son of Man. Jesus actually is the first one to do that. In fact, the only reason we, can, we today connect the suffering servant in Isaiah to Jesus is because Jesus made that connection first. And it's hard, right, to get your mind around it, right? It's hard to describe it of how appalling and shocking this was all to the disciples. Jesus is saying this to them. He's saying, yes, guys, you're right. I am the Messiah. Yes, I'm going to Jerusalem to defeat all that is evil and to set everything right. But I'm not going there to ascend to a throne. Instead, I'm going there to ascend to a cross. I'm not going there to live. I'm going there to die. I'm not going there to exert my power. I'm going there to lay down my power. And all of that is so appalling to Peter that as soon as Jesus says it, Peter begins to rebuke Jesus. Now, the word that is used as rebuke here is the exact same word that Jesus uses when he rebukes the demons. So it's an extremely strong word that's being used here. In fact, Peter's reaction is so strong to Jesus that he actually takes Jesus off to the side so the other disciples couldn't see or couldn't hear what they were going to talk about. And then as he does that, he just lets Jesus have it. He just lays right into Jesus. He, he stares, tears one strip off one side and then goes right back down the other side. He really lets Jesus have it. 
Basically, what he is doing by rebuking Jesus, Peter's saying this to Jesus. He's saying, Jesus, your kingdom is all about conquering. It's about winning. Your kingdom is not about suffering. So how does Jesus respond to Peter? We know that Jesus loves this guy. We've seen the grace that Jesus has exercised for Peter. Remember, Peter's the same one that cut someone's ear off. He's the same one that denies Jesus and all of that. And every single time, he just he continues to show grace to Peter. So how does Jesus respond here? To Peter's rebuke. Pretty gentle, right? Let's listen to what he says, verse 33. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, so this is what he did. He took Peter's like, okay, we're done here. He takes Peter back. They go back to where the disciples were, looked at the disciples, and he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Jesus, what we need to understand here is this. Jesus is not calling Peter Satan here. This is not what this means. What he is saying is that in this moment that Peter is rebuking Jesus because they hadn't made the connection of the Messiah and suffering, but it's going to be the Messiah. They made the connection of the Messiah being powerful, of coming and throwing the, overthrowing the government. Jesus, what Jesus is saying is that in this moment, Peter is buying into Satan's agenda. Because Satan's agenda is what? It's all about the glorification of power, right? Power of influence, power of money, power of position. Just, it's a glorification of power. Satan's agenda is to get people, to get you and me to buy into this idea that if you want to get anything in this world, you have to do it. You got to do that by leveraging your power, which has led this which has led to a world filled with people pursuing power at all costs. That's his agenda. And in this moment, Peter is aligning himself with Satan's agenda in the world. That's why Jesus doesn't just say he's going to suffer and die. He says, I must suffer and die. Because his going to the cross is actually an an, an, an authentic, selfless love that actually breaks the cycle of selflessness, selfishness, and self-centeredness in this world. So here's the deal in all this. I know we don't like to admit this, But if we're really, really honest, most expressions of love are actually pretty selfish. In many cases, the purpose of our love towards someone else is actually to fulfill our own happiness. So, the love is conditional and non-vulnerable. It's conditional in that we are willing to extend love as long as the other person is affirming us in the way that we need to be affirmed. It's non-vulnerable in the sense that we actually hold back a part of ourselves, so it's not quite as painful if we need to get out. The authentic love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross is so radically different than that. It's selfless. 
on the cross, Jesus gave himself away so that we might be able to experience joy. Because let's, here's, here's the honest reality in all, in all this. What brings Jesus joy is your joy. That's the reality. What Jesus brings, the joy, what brings Jesus joy is our joy. So it's a love that's unconditional and it's non-transactional, right? It's a love in which the degree to which Jesus loves us is actually not determined on the degree in which we actually love him back. There's nothing you can or cannot do that will make Jesus love you any more or any less. The degree in which Jesus loves you has nothing to do, and it's not determined how much you love him back. So if you really super love him back, he's not necessarily going to super love you back. And if you don't love him, then he's not going to love you back. It's not the way his love works. It's a love that is also radically vulnerable because on the cross, Jesus was vulnerable. He held nothing back, right? He loved completely knowing in that moment, him going to the cross, knowing that his love actually may be rejected by you. Talk about being vulnerable, right? The only reason we are here today We're here worshiping here today. It's because of the love of God that is so radically vulnerable. And you may ask, well, how is that kind of love even possible? How could he do that? How is that even possible? It's not just the fact that he's God and he he can love like that because he's God. It's it's what it means to be God. It's possible that Jesus can love like that is because he is part of the Trinity. Think about that for a moment. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been in this loving relationship with each other for eternity with this unconditional and radical, vulnerable love between the three. Which means what? Which means that Jesus wants our love. He wants our love, but let's get real. He does not need our love. He wants our love, but he actually does not even need it. Why? Because Jesus is not dependent upon our love, which means that Jesus can actually love us unconditionally, and it also means his love for us can also be completely vulnerable. Jesus is so secure, so secure in the love of the Father that he can actually risk, risk, loving us, risk going to the cross and laying down his life knowing this, knowing that we actually may not love him back. That's the love of Jesus. Think about that. It sure will help us as we enter and join around the table understanding that love. Because this is what this table signifies one thing, it shows his love, his unconditional, vulnerable love. Here's this Jesus who loves you so much that before you were even created, he made himself vulnerable, laid down his life for you with no guarantee that you would actually love him back. And maybe for some of you, you're in a season where 
Maybe you, you really aren't loving him back right now. But here's the thing. It doesn't change his radically vulnerable love he has for you. So Jesus tells the disciples that, he's, that he is a king that goes to a cross. He's a king that's going to lay down his life. He's a king that's going to sacrifice himself, whose love is unconditional, and they are actually appalled by that. They're shocked by that. They never, ever would have connected the Son of Man with suffering. Then Jesus goes on to say something that's even more appalling and even more shocking to them. He continues on in verse 34, and this is what he says. He called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and this is what he said. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. In other words... Jesus is saying this. Now, not only is he a king that goes to a cross, but that anyone who wants to follow him has to go to a cross as well. That they have to take up their cross. Now, what does that mean, right? What does that even mean to take up your cross? There's lots of ways that we can talk about what that looks like. But let me just quickly share three things in a practical sense, of what it looks like, what it means for you to take up your cross. It means this. It means you have a new capacity to love. You, if you take up your cross, if you follow Jesus, it means that you have this new capacity to love. See, it's impossible to love unconditionally, to be radically vulnerable in the way we love and not be in a relationship with someone who loves us unconditionally. The only place we can be absolutely certain of that kind of love is in our relationship with Jesus. That doesn't mean that all of our other relationships now become shallower. It actually means just the opposite. It actually means that all of our other relationships have this potential to go much deeper because you're no longer looking to this person to provide something that only God can provide. And we, we make that mistake all the time in relationships, right? We put all this onus on this one person or whatever, a few people, to provide something for us that only God himself can provide. The thing that keeps relationships from getting to the depth of intimacy, vulnerability, and unconditional love is that we oftentimes place on the other person an expectation that can only be filled by God. And see, when we do that, we get disappointed, right? When we get disappointed because we may be loved unconditionally and they don't love us back the way we hoped that they would or they let us down or maybe they betray us. And usually when that starts to happen, it's our tendency to say, I'm never going to do that again. I'm never going to put myself in that position ever again. And that's how relationships will go. Unless 
You are in a relationship with someone who you know loves you unconditionally, and it's out of that confidence that that relationship brings that allows you, allows us to take the risk to love. Because love is risky, isn't it? It's so risky. And I think that's the thing that we don't talk about a lot when it comes to love. Love is a risk. If you're doing it with the right motives, you're putting yourself out there. You do, you're exposing yourself. You become, you're being radically vulnerable, right? Love is a risk. Real, deep, intimate love is a risk. It's a risk that we're going to open ourselves up and be vulnerable, and someone may actually not love us back in the exactly same way. And that is a risk, right? The only thing that allows us to take that risk is when we are in a relationship with someone who, will, who we know will always love us, who will never turn his back on us, who will never let us down. As we take up our cross, it, what it means is we, we have this new capacity to love in a way that we never could before. It also means that you get a new identity as well. You get this new identity. It says in verse 35, it says, For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul. Now, that word translated as life is the Greek word psyche, which we get words like psychology and things like that, right? It has to do with identity. What makes you, you? That's what that word means. And in every culture, there are certain things that the culture says that if you acquire these things, then you know who you really are. It will give you a sense of self. You will find your identity. See, in traditional cultures, that may have been like things like family and children. In modern cultures, it may be something like money, status, education, accomplishments. In the church, it may be your moral performance that gives you an identity. What Jesus is saying here is this. No, you can gain all those things and actually still lose sight of who you actually are. In other words, you can't perform yourself to a sense of security in your identity. That here's the reality. You will never have enough. You will never accomplish enough. You will never do enough to make you feel secure in who you are. In fact, if your identity, if your identity is rooted in something that can actually be taken away, or it's something that you need to be always scrambling for, to keep your sense of identity, then that is not your true identity. Jesus is saying, unless you are willing to lose this idea of finding your identity in all of that, all of that that you've gained, that you actually can't really follow me and find your identity in me. So we find that us taking up this cross it gives us this new identity. And lastly, taking up your cross means that you get a new agenda as well. Peter, let's just be real here. He was ticked off. He was mad. He was angry. And the reason is not because he's scared of the suffering. It's because Peter had an agenda. 
He already had everything figured out. He, he had this agenda. His agenda did not include a cross. And when he realized Jesus' agenda was different than his, he gets mad and he rebukes Jesus. Because at that point in his spiritual journey, following Jesus wasn't the end. It was just a means to an end. That's where Peter was in his journey. Jesus wasn't the end. He was just a means to an end of maybe accomplishment or power or influence or whatever it may have been. You see, when Jesus becomes nothing more than a means to an end, then Jesus is not king. He is not Lord, and he is not Messiah in your life. Yes, we can come on on times of worship like this, and we can sing songs about him being the king, being Lord, being Messiah. We can say that he's all of those things, but if, if he's just a means to an end, then Jesus is actually not Lord of your life. That's what that means. See, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus was preparing to go to the cross, you remember the prayer that he prayed, right, in the Garden? In that prayer, Jesus comes to a point of really saying this, you know what, if this doesn't have to play out this way, then let's not do it. I'd rather not do this. You know, his words were, let this cup pass from me, right? And he goes on, but he goes on to say, but he says, but Father, not my will, but your will be done. And essentially what he's saying is like, he's like, Father, he's like, God, not my agenda. Not my agenda, but your agenda. Not my timing, but your timing. And I think the question we always have to ask ourselves is that where do we need to pray that prayer of Jesus? Like, Where in our life right now do we need to pray that prayer? Not my agenda, but your agenda, God. Not my will be done, but your will be done. And that's what it means to take up your cross and follow Jesus. It it gets you this new agenda. The way I choose to live my life is to say, not my will, but yours. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the love of your Son and the love of you in our life. We thank you that this love is unconditional and is vulnerable. And because of that love, Lord, we have all these amazing benefits that come come with it. And Lord, I just pray we'll just be secure in the love that you have for us and how that will impact our life which means it will also impact others. So Lord, we thank you for this love in our life. We pray this in your name. Amen.